Welcome to Simply by Grace, a podcast of Grace Life Ministries with founder and director, Dr. Charlie Bing. This podcast and other helpful resources can be found at our website, gracelife.org. Now, here's Dr. Bing. I deeply appreciate the invitation to be here again with you this year and um, have a wonderful welcome and I get to know you better, get acquainted with you better and see so many people again. So it's just been a wonderful experience. And um, um, you know, the question I get asked most frequently is, um, does your wife ever travel with you? And nobody asked me that this week because uh, she is here and it's a great blessing to have her. But usually she's, she, for many, probably most of my trips, she's not able to come. And um, that's, why, but no, that's why no one asks that question. Now the other question, the, the most frequently unasked question, you know Jesus always answered unasked questions. The most frequent unasked question is, what is your ethnic background? And I wrote about that in my little book, Simply by grace, the little blue book out there, so I don't think I need to tell you about that. Just... <laughs> and uh, if you do access the resources online, it's gracelife.org. Gracelife.org, not .com. It'll bring you somewhere else. And you'll find a lot of helpful Bible studies there, I think, on, online. Some useful tools and uh, messages. And uh, actually, my, my doctoral dissertation on Lordship Salvation is actually all there in digital form online. Um, and Grace Life is all about the grace of God. I just can't get over that. Um, and uh, we say that at Grace Life, we preach the gospel of grace to the unsaved and the grace of the gospel to the saved. The gospel of grace to the unsaved because nobody gets saved unless they understand the message of God's free gift, right? But then we preach the grace of the gospel to the saved because as Phil just testified, the mo more we understand and appreciate God's grace, the greater freedom and liberty and joy we have. And I'm not saying that I have a handle on that, but I, I'm, I'm trying my best to uh, help Christians understand what it means to live under grace, which is what we're going to talk about today in the judgment seat of Christ. We started yesterday by talking about the great white throne judgment, so this is kind of a part two because we're drawing a, a contrast between the judgments. And the judgment today we'll talk about is called Judgment seat of Christ. Judgment. Yeah, differences are important. As, uh, as uh, Dr. House showed you last night, the difference between a bush and a tree, there's many similarities, but it's seeing the distinctions and the differences that can make a big difference in Bible study. Makes a big difference in how we live our lives as well. Um, what, what if you don't see the difference between gasoline and diesel fuel when you go to the pump? Makes a big difference, doesn't it? What if you don't see the difference between uh, fire, the fire of hell, and the fire of God's discipline or anger, which can even be poured out on his own people, as most of the instances of fire is in the Old Testament, and fire used as a figure of speech for discipline of Christians in the New Testament? What if you see, don't see a difference between the word salvation and the different passages that are being used? Like when it says in 1 Timothy 2 that a woman is saved through childbearing. It's not talking about eternal salvation, is it? Because the word salvation has a number of different uses. So learning to see these distinctions, especially even in words, is a very important part of Bible study. 
Mark Twain said, uh, the difference between the right word and the almost right word is like the difference between lightning and the lightning bug. And so the difference between the great white throne judgment and the judgment seat of Christ is going to make a great difference in our lives and the way we understand the Bible. I have a simple system of, of classifying uh, truth that pertains to salvation and truth that pertains to the Christian life. Truth that pertains to salvation, I call it a truth. A truth is all about how to have eternal life and, uh, and the consequences for not having eternal life, like the great white throne. B truth is everything that concerns the Christian life or discipleship or following Jesus, like the judgment seat of Christ. So uh, A truth and B truth may, may give you a little simple handle on how to, uh, how to look at these judgments. But um, what we've said is that the great white throne judgment is for unbelievers. Now that came across, I hope, yesterday, if you got nothing else, that that is a judgment for unbelievers. Now are you going to face that judgment? I hope not. Okay. But, uh, you know, if you, if you wandered in from the ophthalmology conference yesterday and, and sat through the great white throne judgment talk, and you said, wow, I don't want to go to the great white throne judgment, and then you heard uh, why you don't have to go because Jesus offered himself a sacrifice and took God's judgment for us and offered us eternal life as a free gift, and you believe in Jesus Christ for that gift of eternal life, and you just happened to wander back in here today thinking, wow, that, that was great to know that I have eternal life, something that God has given me, a, a brand new life, his own life, and that I will be with him forever. Now I can just sit back and coast my way to heaven. Well, the great white throne uh, uh, does save you eternally, but the judgment seat of Christ demands a response to the life that you've given and tells us that we will be held accountable for the life how we live the life that we've been given. And so this is a message, the judgment seat of Christ is a truth, be truth, that's for believers. And it's so important to sting, distinguish the difference between the two. Some people might look at uh, receiving eternal life like a ticket to heaven, and we just sit back and coast our way there. That's kind of like getting, winning the lottery and getting a check for $200 million dollars and saying, man, I won the lottery, I've got a check for $200 million, I'm going to frame it and put it on the wall. Well, what's better than when getting a check for $200 million? Spending $200 million, right? What's better than getting eternal life? Living eternal life. And that's what God wants us to do. And he's going to hold us accountable for how we do it. So let's talk about the judgment seat of Christ and what it is and what it isn't. The judgment seat of Christ is a judgment of how we live our new life, including our motives and our deeds for the possibility of eternal rewards, and as we'll see later, or the possibility of losing what could have been rewards, okay? So it's, it is a judgment, an assessment by the Lord Jesus Christ of how we lived our lives, what we did with it, and even the motives behind what we did, because you can do a good thing with a bad motive. What it is not is a judgment of our salvation to see if we go to heaven or hell. That was yesterday's talk. That was a truth. That's the great white throne judgment. Okay? So when is it 
Well, apparently, uh, it seems that the judgment seat of Christ is something that happens after the rapture, but before the millennial kingdom. So it's sometime during the tribulation period. When the saints return with Jesus Christ, they return in white robes of linen, which represent the righteous acts of the saints, it says. So apparently they're, they're rewarded at that point. It seems then that the judgment seat of Christ happens somewhere in heaven before the Lord during the tribulation period so that we go into the millennium experiencing the rewards for the light, kind of life that we lived. The, the scripture is not extremely clear on that, but that's, that's my best assessment of when it occurs. Now, when we compare the two, the judgment seat of Christ with the great white throne judgment, this is what we find. If we call the judgment seat of Christ on your left, B truth, and the great white throne, A truth, then the judgment seat of Christ would be for believers only and the great white throne for unbelievers. Uh, we will not appear there. Only those that are called the dead. God will recompose the decomposed from all corners of the earth. Isn't that amazing? And they will all be raised in a resurrection to condemnation. Only God can do that kind of thing. You think of how people die and they turn to dust or they, they get eaten by sharks. and uh, um, It's kind of like unscrambling an egg. I can't unscramble an egg. But God can do that. And he can recompose the decomposed and they will stand before the great white throne judgment. The judgment seat of Christ is before the millennium. The great white throne, Revelation 20, is after the millennium. At the judgment seat of Christ, each gives an account of his own life or her own life before the Lord. At the great white throne, there's no argument. There's nothing to be said. Books are open, and it's just a pronouncement of a sentence. The books are evidence there of your works, of the works of the unbeliever that condemn them, and determine the degree of their punishment. Whereas in the judgment seat of Christ, the works are those things that are rewarded. At the judgment seat of Christ, then, rewards can be won or lost, but at the great white throne, there is only, only the prospect of eternal condemnation. No rewards, no second chance, no temporary uh, purgatory. It is eternal condemnation that is final, as we saw yesterday. So... Let's talk about the great white throne judgment. Uh, eternal salvation is a free gift that we've tried to establish. For by grace you have been saved. And the essence of grace, which comes from the word gift, is that it is undeserved, it is unmerited favor that God bestows on us who are sinners who do not deserve it. There's nothing we can do to earn God's grace if we try to earn it or work for it it ceases to be grace. Grace, by its very nature, is an absolutely free gift. It is, uh, you cannot mix it with works in any way. They are mutually exclusive. So eternal salvation is an absolutely free gift, but Christians can earn a reward by their works and by their deeds and by how we live our lives. And there's a lot of passages that will show these things, and we won't read them all, but uh, here's a few that we will. 1 Corinthians 9, verse 24, Paul says, uh, Do you not know that those who run in a race all run, run, but one receives the prize? Run in such a way that you may obtain it. Now, he's not talking about running a race for salvation. That wouldn't make much sense, would it? And Paul didn't doubt his own salvation. He says later on, 
and a few verses later, I buffet my body lest I become disqualified. In other words, I discipline myself so that I won't get disqualified from this race, from the prize that he could win as a result of his race. And of course, in 2 Timothy 4, he says, I've, I've run the race, I've finished the race, I've run, uh, fought the good fight, and so forth. He's not talking about salvation, that he's completed his salvation. He's talking about being faithful to the Lord. In Philippians 3.14, he says something very similar. He says, I press toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of Christ Jesus. Again, he's, he, it says, if he is in a race, he is pressing forward to a prize. He doesn't say exactly what that prize is, but I take it that it is a greater experience of the Lord Jesus Christ in his life a fellowship with his sufferings and so forth in that context. Matthew 16 tells us when the Lord returns, he will come with his angels and he will reward each according to his works. This is not speaking of unbelievers here. This is speaking of believers who await his return. They will be rewarded. Matthew 22, Revelation 22 says a very similar thing. Jesus said himself, I am coming quickly and my reward is with me. And to everyone according to his work. Jesus is coming with rewards for believers according to their works. And so Christians can earn a prize, and they face first, however, an evaluation of our works. We face an evaluation of our works. Uh, so there's some very explicit teachings on the judgment seat of Christ, which, by the way, in the Greek language, it's, it's one word, it's bema, the Bema Sea, which is taken after a, uh, which, uh, something that every town, every city had in those days. It was a raised platform where a governor or a king would sit, uh, the leaders of the city would sit, and there they would make pronouncements and announcements and do important business. So the Bema Seat was a place where you would come to present your case or give an account for yourself. Um, but here in the English Bible, it's translated judgment seat of Christ. Now, Paul says in Romans chapter 14, in a context where he's trying to convince the Romans to get along with one another on different issues where they differ, he says, why do you judge your brother? Or why do you show contempt for your brother? For we shall all stand before the judgment seat of Christ. Now, notice he says, we. He is including himself. It's a judgment for believers. He says, all, which in the Greek language actually means all. So no one will escape giving an account for him or herself before the judgment seat of Christ. We will stand before the judgment seat of Christ, for it is written, as I live, says the Lord, every knee shall bow to me and every tongue shall confess to God. <clears throat> so then each of us shall give account of himself to God. His point in that context is, look, why do you judge your brother for what he's doing? You may not agree with it, but you don't have to answer to God for what he's doing. Isn't that great? I don't have to answer to God for the choices you make, and you don't have to answer to God for the choices I make. When you stand before the judgment seat of Christ, you're just going to answer for the choices you make. That's kind of a liberating truth, isn't it? He says in 1 Corinthians 3, in a, in a longer passage, he says, For no foundation can anyone lay than that which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. Now, Paul had said that he came and he laid that foundation. He preached the gospel of Christ to them in Corinth, and they believed. But, he says, now, if anyone builds on this foundation, now, this, this implies laboring in the Lord and, and living your life in, in the Lord. If anyone builds on this foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, 
wood, hay, straw, each one's work will become clear. When? For the day. What day? That day of judgment will declare it because it will be revealed by fire. Again, the word fire. The fires of hell, A, truth, or the fires of God's discerning judgment, B, truth. Obviously, B, truth. So, the day, uh, the fire, it will be tested. The fire will test each one's works. Now, the fire at the great white throne doesn't test works. It burns people, right? The fire at the judgment seat of Christ burns unworthy works. Those works of wood, hay, and straw. To see what sort it is, if anyone's work which has, he has built on it endures, he will receive a reward. If anyone's work is burned, he will suffer loss, but he himself will be saved, yet so as through fire. Now, you see what this passage is saying? This is an instance where people can often, often get confused. They read the word fire, they read the word judgment, and they, they assume that this is the final judgment at the end time of believers and unbelievers. But it's not that at all. Paul says the foundation has been laid, and that foundation is Jesus Christ. And what is being burned is the unworthy building materials on that foundation. Materials that don't have an eternal value. Now some of our very good friends in our church back home, on Christmas Day, on Christmas Day, their house burned down. Their house burned down. And they've just finally cleared the debris off, and they, they put on Facebook, good news, we can use the same foundation. So they don't have to lay another foundation. Because foundations don't burn. And when tornadoes come and blow the house away, usually the foundation stay, stays there. I don't know of a foundation that's been blown away. So the foundation of Jesus Christ is always there, but what kind of materials do we build upon that foundation? You can build with gold, silver, and precious stones. Worthy works. Not only worthy works, but good motives behind the works. Or wood, hay, and straw. Now, these are deeds that are done that look good, but with bad motives. You can do a good thing in a bad way or for a bad reason. And that's going to be revealed at the judgment seat of Christ. And some people that you thought were doing such a good and wonderful thing, they were just doing it for the wrong reason. But all that's going to be revealed before the judgment seat of Christ. And guess what? Poof. It's going to be burned up. But does that person lose their salvation? What does it say? They are saved, yet so as through fire. So they are saved, but their works are burned up. They go into heaven with no reward. Heaven's going to be a great place, a great experience, but they're going to go in with no reward. They're going to go in with their life and their eternal life. It's kind of like I always picture someone in the middle of the night, their house is on fire. They, all, they realize that everything's burning up around them. All they have time to do is run out the door. And they're standing in the street in their boxer shorts watching everything burn up. They are saved, yet so is through fire. They escaped. They got their life, but their eyebrows are singed, and they smell like smoke. You know, there's a lot of Christians in heaven who are smell like smoke. Secondhand smoke in heaven. They made it. But most of their life has been burned. Most of their works have, been, have gone up in smoke, literally. My friend Dr. Rodmacher passed away last year. He had a message he called, Bikini Believers at the Bama. 
<clears throat> I didn't create a PowerPoint slide for that. <laughs> but that's Dr. Rodmarker, if you knew him. Bikini believers at the Bema. In other words, barely clad, but there. Well, we don't want to be that, do we? So we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, he says in 2, Timothy 5, 2 Corinthians 5.10, that each one may receive the things done in the body according to what he has done, good or bad, whether good or bad. The things done in the body, while we had a body on this earth, whether we did things that were good or things that were bad, we have to give an account to God for those things. And so Christians can gain a prize, we will face an evaluation from our works, and we can gain rewards or we can lose rewards at the judgment seat of Christ. 1 Corinthians 3 already talked to us about um, those rewards. The rewards of our good works will be as if they pass on with us. We take that treasure with us, or we can lose those rewards. Um, and we can experience those rewards, some of them in this life, as well as in the life to come. Uh, you know, John 10.10, 10, Jesus said, I have come that you might have life and might have it abundantly. He's talking about this life. You can have eternal life or you can have it abundantly, a greater experience of eternal life. Because eternal life is not just a quantity, it is a quality. Eternal life, in essence, is God's life. And God's life is limitless. How much can you enjoy God's life? It depends on on the price that you pay, the sacrifices that you make, the choices that you make. I like this passage in Matthew, in Mark chapter 10. This is where Jesus answers one of those questions that was never really asked, but Peter started to ask the question because he asked the Lord, uh, after the Lord talked to the rich young ruler and told him that, uh, you know, unless he has to go and sell everything if he wants to enter the kingdom of heaven. He didn't mean that he would entered the kingdom of heaven if he sold things. He was just showing the rich young ruler that he was not as righteous as he thought he was because he thought he had kept all the law. But here's, here's what Peter says in uh, Mark 10, 28. Peter said to him, Jesus, see, we've left all and follow you. What was he asking? He, that's what he said, but what was he asking? Lord, what's in it for us? We've left that. We have left everything. So what's in it for us? Is it worth it? And here's what Jesus said to him. Now listen, he said, Assuredly I say to you, there is no one who has left house or brothers or sisters or father or mother or wife or children or lands for my sake and the gospels who shall not receive a hundredfold now in this time houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children and lands with persecutions and in the life to come eternal life. What's Jesus saying? Peter, you haven't given up anything that you're not going to get back a hundred times in this life, but also in the life to come, a greater experience of God's eternal life. You see, you can't outgive God. You can't out-sacrifice God. It comes back to you. That's why, that's why Jesus said, uh, if you seek to save your life, you'll lose it. But if for my sake you lose your life, you gain it. That's not a truth talking about salvation. That's salvation. He, that's a, a truth he was talking to his disciples in Matthew 16. Disciples who were saved. He was telling them that if you really want to experience the fullness of life, the abundant life, the richness of life, then lose it to me. 
and God will give it back to you. So rewards can be experienced in this life, we call that temporally, or in eternity. Experienced in eternity, there's a number of passages that, that talk about that um, uh, eternal reward. In Revelation 22, we've already looked at when Jesus Christ returns. And rewards can be varied. There's a number of different rewards. Uh, the whole topic of rewards, can go, we can do a series on it, but we're just giving a brief review. There's what Jesus called treasures in heaven. Lay up for yourself treasures in heaven. Um, now, Jesus didn't say what those treasures were. So uh, I'm not going to say what those treasures are. But I have a feeling they're going to be good if he calls them treasures, don't you? Do you really need to know what it is if Jesus promised you something good? to be motivated by it. And then there are re the crown rewards that we find in the Bible um, listed. Uh, the crown of glory, the crown of life, the crown of rejoicing, and the crown of righteousness. Now you can take this literally if you want to as a literal crown. I don't have a problem with that. Uh, but it certainly must be something uh, that, that is signified by that and uh, a deeper meaning to that, uh, the, a crown of joy, meaning a greater experience of joy, the crown of life, meaning a greater experience of life, or great experience of rejoicing or righteousness um, with that crown. Um, it's not really explained to us in the scriptures what those crowns are. In Revelation chapter 2 and 3, there are rewards for those believers in the church who are faithful, and uh, they're called the overcomer rewards. And there's reigning with Christ as a reward. Romans 8, 17 talks about if we suffer with him, then we'll, we'll reign with him. And uh, Matthew 19 as well talks about uh, the disciples are promised to reign with the Lord uh, on his 12 thrones over the kingdom of Israel. So there's that kind of reward. There's Christ's verbal honor. In other words, just to hear, well done, good and faithful servant, or his commendation his confession of us before the Father. Uh, he says, if you, if you don't confess me before men, I won't confess you before the Father. And a lot of us, take, a lot of us have interpreted that as a truth, that meaning that he, we are not saved if we don't confess before other men. But he's talking again to his disciples. I take it as B truth. If we don't profess Christ or confess Christ to other men, then Jesus isn't going to brag about us before the Father. And we'll be there. He's just not going to confess us in a special way, and I'm going to give you an example of that a little bit later. So Christ's verbal honor would mean a lot to us. You can take treasures, and you can take riches, and you can take crowns, but just to hear the Lord say, well done. Lord, Father, this man, this woman has served me faithfully. That would mean a lot to me. So our reward's a proper motivation. When we talk about the judgment seat of Christ, rewards play into it, but some say, well, I don't, I don't live for rewards. I don't work for rewards. And uh, frankly, since I don't know exactly what the rewards are, they're not a major motivation for me. There are other primary motivations. I would think that the highest motivation of all would be a love for God. We serve him and we, we do what he wants us to do because we love him. He first loved us. Gratitude would be another high motivation. We're grateful to God, so we want to live our lives gratefully. Someone said the Christian life is just like a big thank you note to God. There's the motivations of duty. Uh, for example, we're just doing what we, we've, God has asked us to do. But rewards is a legitimate motivation in the Scripture, and we can't deny that. 
It doesn't need to be your primary motivation. Maybe it's not. But to know that it will be worth it all, whatever sacrifice we've made or whatever price we've paid for the Lord, it will be worth it all. And rewards teach us responsibility in our freedom. It teaches us that there, there is justice, that one, whatever one reaps, whatever one sows, he will also reap. And so there is justice even for the believer. And so a believer who is irresponsible before the Lord will not receive rewards, but a believer who is responsible in using their freedom in Christ under grace will be rewarded for that. And rewards encourage us to do good works that God intends for us. Ephesians 2.10 says that uh, we have been saved by grace through faith unto good works. That's God's purpose for us. And by fulfilling his purpose, uh, we can earn rewards, but rewards also motivate us to do those good works. And they prepare us for eternity. In some way, by a greater experience of God in this life, we are better prepared for eternity. They give us pleasure. I mean, I'm sorry, they give God pleasure in bestowing them to us. And who are we to deny God that pleasure? If your son or your daughter works hard, for example, in school, and you see them sacrificing time, you know, they're not going to the parties with their friends, they're not hanging out at the burger joint, and so forth. They're doing their studies, and they're doing, they're doing so well, and you're so proud of them. And they're not asking for anything. They're just, they're just motivated, and they want to do a good job. And, and you're so proud of them. You say, you know, I am so proud of you. Uh, you know, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to buy you a new car. That, because it gives you joy to do that. Not, they're not asking for it. It gives God joy to reward us when we honor him. Not that we're asking or demanding. It just gives him joy. And it glorifies him to do that. He does everything for his glory. So rewards can be a proper motivation. We don't need to apologize for them. After all, it wasn't my idea. It was his idea. And if it's God's idea, then it's a pretty good idea. And we shouldn't deny him the pleasure and the process of giving us rewards. So what do we conclude? Life under grace is not a life of license but it's a life of responsibility with temporal and eternal consequences. The great white throne judgment for unbelievers has only one condition. Have you believed in Jesus Christ as your Savior? That will determine the outcome of the great white throne judgment. You have not, you will be there and be judged eternally and cast into the lake of fire. However, the judgment seat of Christ is different. There are many conditions involved. Be truths, following Jesus, denying yourself, taking up his cross, honoring your father and mother, and, and a loving God uh, more than your mother, brother, sister, and so forth. There's all kinds of conditions that can earn us a reward and a good assessment at the judgment seat of Christ. And so when we live under grace, you see, this answers the question. When we teach the gospel of grace as a free gift, we say, God has given us the free gift of eternal life. And you are secure with God forever. And all of your sins are forgiven. And as Romans 5.20 says, uh, where sin abounds, grace abounds even more. And then someone comes along and they says, well, oh, so I can do whatever I want to? Since I'm not under the law, I'm under grace? No, grace doesn't teach a life of license. It teaches a life of responsibility 
and accountability. Let's be very clear about that. God will hold us now accountable for the grace that he's given to us, for the life that he's given to us, and for the freedom that he's given to us. Because God loves us, and he loves his children too much to let them run wild. You know, that's why we discipline our children, right? Not to be mean, but because we love them. And God loves us too much to let us run wild. And so he's going to hold us accountable, reward us accordingly, or withhold rewards accordingly. Now, so what? What about the application to my life and my situation? How would it affect me? Well, first of all, we should learn to distinguish between the two judgments. And that's what we've been saying. The great white throne is different from the judgment seat of Christ. There are similarities. There's fire. There's the Lord present. Um, there's works determining uh, either the degree of punishment or in the judgment seat of Christ determining rewards. There are similarities, but we as Bible students must learn to see the distinctions that are so important. To see the distinctions between what is salvation truth, A truth, and what is Christian truth, Christian life truth, or B truth. Salvation is not by works. But our evaluation of the judgment seat of Christ will include an evaluation of our works and our motives. So keep works out of the gospel. What happens if you confuse the two judgments together and you look at the judgment, great white throne judgment and you see that works there are determined, determinative of that person's judgment and then you see works in the judgment seat of Christ and you try to merge them into one judgment, then works become necessary for salvation. But we want to keep works out of the gospel by distinguishing these different judgments. It also teaches us that we should live res responsibly. We have to give an account for our lives. Yes, we have freedom under grace. We are not under the law. But what are we going to do with that freedom? Paul says, don't use your, your freedom uh, for selfish means, but use it to love your brother. And then you'll fulfill the law. If we love God with all our heart and we love our brothers and sisters, we're going to fulfill the law. We're going to do the right thing towards God and we're going to do the right things towards one another. And we should live with eternity in mind because whatever we do today affects our experience in eternity. The choices that we make, the everyday choices, will affect our experience and eternity. By our lives today and the choices we make and the things that we do, we make our spiritual beds for eternity. An awesome thought, isn't it? That the little things that we think really don't amount to much are someday going to be taken into account by the Lord. Someone said what we do in this life is we just we build our cups. Some of us will have small cups when we, when we go into eternity, we won't be able to contain that much blessings from the Lord. Some of us will have big buckets, but we determine the size of our cup by how we live our lives. There's a passage in 2 Peter chapter 1, which shows that what we do today makes a difference for, etern for eternity. 
And uh, let's just look at that passage real quickly. It's in 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 5 uh, through 11. But Paul talks about in two believers, so it's, it is be, be truth, truth to believers. He says, for this very reason, giving all diligence, add to your faith virtue. He's saying, like, you have faith in Christ. Now, build on that. There's the foundation. Build on that with virtue. And add to virtue knowledge, and to knowledge self-control, and to self-control perseverance, and to perseverance godliness, and to godliness brotherly kindness. So keep building, keep growing. And if you do that, he says in verse 8, for if these things are yours and abound, you will be neither barren nor unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. Believers who build on their faith with these virtues will be fruitful for the Lord Jesus Christ. In other words, they, other words the way he says it, you will not be barren or unfruitful, meaning that you will be fruitful, both in this life and the next life. Um, and look, skip to verse 11. He says, a consequence of this is for so an entrance will be supplied to you abundantly in the everlasting kingdom of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Now, he doesn't say that an entrance will be supplied to you. We pay attention to the details of Scripture. He says an entrance will be applied, supplied to you abundantly. In other words, if you build a, a virtuous life based on faith in Christ, you don't have to go through the back door. You come in the front door to an abundant welcome. It just implies a, a, a certain reward that you'll come. It probably is playing on the, the idea of a conqueror who returns from battle. If he returns defeated, he, he just sneaks back into the city He's home, but, but without any applause. But if he's a victor, he comes abundant, with an abundant welcome into the city and a great victory parade. Now, how do you want to spend eternity? Jesus says that you can have an abundant entrance based on how we build our lives and the virtues that we build upon our faith in Jesus Christ. A story that has uh, got me thinking comes from Acts chapter 7 near the end. You know, Acts chapter 7 is pretty much a speech by Stephen, um, chosen to uh, be one of the uh, leaders in the early church. And here he's defending the Christian faith uh, against the Jews. And he's saying some things pretty straightforward to them. Like, you've killed the prophets and you've murdered your Messiah. He calls them murderers. Kind of made the Jews mad. And they gnashed their teeth at him. And he, they were about to kill him. And then look what the passage says. It says, But he, being full of the Holy Spirit, gazed into heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God and said, Look, I see the heavens open and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. You know what caught my attention in this passage? This is the only place in the Bible where we see Jesus standing in heaven. As one of the speakers said yesterday, he is seated at the right hand of God, at the right hand of the throne of God. Jesus, Hebrews tells us, 
has done his work as high priest, and he sat down. But he's standing. Why is he standing? What has Stephen just done? Stephen, in his short biography in the Scriptures, has just given his life to the Lord in martyrdom by speaking the truth to a hostile crowd. He pays for it with his life. And my ho- not allegory, but my holy speculation is that Jesus Christ stands up to honor him and to give him an abundant welcome into heaven. That's not allegory. I think it's just speculation and a guess at why Jesus is standing. If you have a better reason, let me know. It's the only, it's the only instance in the New Testament where Jesus is standing. Because Stephen paid the ultimate, made the ultimate sacrifice, paid the ultimate price. There's rewards for the choices that we make and the things that we do. And the things that we do today make a difference in eternity. Increase our capacity to enjoy the eternal life that we all have. We'll all be in heaven. We'll all be happy. But some of us are going to enjoy it in a way that others will not. Years ago, when our children were young, very young, and they're two years apart, and we have four children, um, like good parents, we wanted them to have some culture. We found out that culture is very expensive to have. (laughs) Tickets to concerts and things. When you're going to seminary, culture is expensive. But the Navy band was coming to town, to Fort Worth. And there was an ad in the paper that said, you can get free tickets to it. So I rushed on the deal, and I got free tickets for our family. We went to see the Navy band. Now, you know, and I thought this would be a good occasion for them to get some good music, you know. I love music, but to me, good music is when I can tap my foot to it. That's good music. Somebody else would go and listen to a concert and say, oh, listen to the overtures and this part and and this part and have a deeper appreciation because they know music in a way that I don't know it. So anyway, we took our four children and uh, we got there very early and sat on the second row. And uh, didn't pay much attention to it, but there was a man directly in front of us, and he was in his uniform. Obviously retired from the service, um, but squeezed into his old Navy uniform on the front row. He wanted to be there. And they played their music. And after the first song, one of my kids fell asleep. (laughs) After the second song, another one fell asleep. I don't think anybody lasted through it, but I enjoyed it. You know, it was some good music. I could tap my foot to it. That, to me, was good music. I asked my children afterward, I said, how did you like the concert? And they said, oh, it was really good. We really liked it. But let me tell you what happened near the end of the concert. What the Navy band did was they wanted to salute all the branches of the armed service and pay honor to the people who were there who had served. And they, they said, we're going to play the theme song the anthem for each of the armed branches of the armed service. And when we do, we welcome you to respond in any way that you like. If you were a part of that branch of the armed service, you can stand up and, uh, and let us know. So they played, they played the anthem for the, the army when the caissons go rolling along. And uh, some army guys stood up and, and uh, people gave them applause for their service. And then they played the Air Force song, um, Off We Go Into the Wild Blue Yonder, and The Air Force guy stood up, and there was applause in honor of their service. 
And then they played the Marine anthem um, from the halls of Montezuma. And some Marines stood up, and there was applause for them. And of course, being the Navy band, they saved what they thought the best for last, and they, they played the Navy anthem, Anchors Away. And people started to stand up for that and receive polite applause. And then this man that was sitting in front of us, in the front row, he stood up, he turned around and faced the crowd and saluted the crowd, and I noticed the tears running down his face. And I said to myself, what is this man experiencing that I'm not experiencing, that I don't have a capacity to experience? He paid a price somewhere that I haven't paid because I've never been in the military. Did he give 20 years of his life to the service? Did he give 30 years of his life to the Navy? Did he give his leg in service to our country? Did he give his son in service to his country? What did it cost him that would cause him to appreciate that music in a way that I couldn't? Somewhere, somehow, he had done something to have a greater capacity to experience that song in a way I never could. To me, it was all good. I could tap my foot to the music. But I didn't appreciate it like this man. Now, we're all going to be in heaven together if we know the Lord Jesus Christ is our Savior. We're all going to stand before the judgment seat of Christ. But some of us are going to have a deeper experience in heaven. And that depends on the choices that you make today. That depends on the prices that you pay. That depends on the sacrifice that you make. You can't outgive God is what the scriptures teach us. It comes back to us in greater measure. We try to hang on to our lives, we lose it. But if we give our lives to God, he gives it back to us a hundredfold. Let me pray with you. Father, what a wonderful thought it is that you are a just God. And that justice for us as Christians is not a terrifying thing. It is an encouraging thing to know that whatever price we pay, whatever sacrifice we make, it's all going to be worth it. And Father, more than anything, we look forward to hearing your commendation of well done. We want to be faithful. We want to be good disciples. And Lord, we serve you not, not necessarily because of you will give us a reward, but because you, we love you and you've first loved us and given us your most precious Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. So we thank you for this truth, Father. May we, we bear it home and, and take it through our lives so that we can live accountably and responsibly before you. Bring joy to your heart and joy to our lives and a testimony to those around us. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening. For more resources or to help spread the message of God's life-changing grace, visit our website at gracelife.org. We'd love to hear from you. Send us a message at simplybygrace at gracelife.org. See you next time.